I've just read your hot, uh, we're going to have an argument. I didn't realise we we're going to have an argument. Oh, yeah, no, I know. Fair enough. <laughs> no, we're not. It's going to be very good natured. Because <laughs> I don't feel very strongly about this. I just, I just want to take one end of the argument for, for podcasting sake. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 89th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom which is coming to you on the 3rd of August 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have letters of comment. Firstly, we have a letter of comment from Abigail Nussbaum, uh, who says she is writing to come down on Liz's side regarding Plutoshine, but says that she agrees with Alison that taken on its own, Plutoshine is a decent example of the sort of SF you would have enjoyed as a kid, but the reason she read it was because it was on the Clark shortlist, and that's a choice she finds utterly baffling. I... I... I would say I also find it baffling that it's on a shortlist, despite quite enjoying it. She also says Goliath's an astonishing novel, but quite hard going. I'm still halfway through Goliath, so maybe next time. Liz, do you want to talk about how I'm right? Abigail says that Goliath is a work that is deliberately trying to be hard to read, and she too found it a bit slow going. She mentions Emmy Itaranta's The Moonday Letters, which she thinks is a brilliant novel. We talked about that on the pod when I picked it after Neil and Nick gave it to me for my birthday. Interestingly, my wife really didn't get on with the Moonday Letters because she basically found the conceit... Because part of the conceit of the novel is you can work out what's happening faster than the main character can. Like, the protagonist is not aware of a thing that is being made aware to you, the reader. But Hispania fundamentally did not believe that any adult would not be able to put together what was happening with the evidence they had in front of them and found the conceit that the main character had not utterly utterly frustrating and so kept asking me if it got good um so yes <laughs> i'll put it on my list i feel the need to express her opinions for the sake of balance but i'm looking forward to reading pure shine haven't read it yet will be after my hugo reading and edward morland also wrote in to thank liz for her um irritation yes more listeners should write in to tell me when i am correct thank you <laughs> on the subject of books we did or did not enjoy we got some submissions to our book throwing competition uh, so this is the annual for new listeners the annual octothought competition where we ask our listeners to throw a book uh, measure how far it went and then the winner receives a pie no 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 the river the winner does not receive a pie <laughs> that's the only thing i said then new listeners that isn't correct all the all the rest was stone cold fact but farah threw ash by mary gentle across the room and said it's supposed to be written by an academic historian which i assume means that farah did not find the portrayal of academic history realistic not being an ac- i i really like ash I just wanted to, not being an, uh, an academic historian i didn't notice any of that and i really liked it i think ash was pretty awesome yeah good book this is this is um foreshadowing slightly for our six weeks episode duncan mcgregor on mastodon said that he would tell us the book he's thrown hardest across the room but he thinks its author might follow him on mastodon so he simply said that it was very hard sf and he loves their short stories but their novels are clearly part of a linear accelerator experiment and alexandra lanes commented to say that it's called hard sf because it doesn't deform when it hits things thank you both are we allowed to speculate about the author what's the book what's the book yeah come on come on duncan slide into our dms give us give us that hot goss we promise we won't read it out on the pod 
I mean, my 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 guess is. Oh, could be. Can we look at the list of who follows Duncan on? <laughs> We've got to look at the list of people who are on Mastodon because Duncan didn't check if they follow him. He just said he thinks they might. So, oh. but they're definitely on Mastodon. Laurie Anderson wrote in saying that she was up for dueling six wakes episode and um she suggested two names so this is a pun from our group chat listeners um behind the curtain so our group chat is called hugh gock to thorpe girl which is even harder to say in a sassy way than hugo girl is um so <laughs> hugo girl is easy to say in a sassy way now that we've practiced <laughs> i just pronounce it as hugok to thorpe girl she's nice oh Oh, Hugoctothorpe Girl. That's that is nice. Yeah, but she suggests we call it Hugoctothorpe Girl presents twelve wakes. But then further suggested, oh, or we could call it Six Takes because there are six of us. And I did quite like that name. That is a very good name. Oh, that's very good. It's quite good. <laughs> I'm not sure we only have three takes between the three of us. No, but I think for the pun. Uh, right. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um. Raj tweeted about episode 87. Uh, he would prefer the moose-sized Alison on the grounds that he could bribe her not to fight using tea and cake. Which, you know, just thinking outside the box. Okay, so the word for the words tea and cake, substitute beer and cheese and you might be getting somewhere. Yeah, Alison doesn't like sweet things uh, as much as savoury things. That is true. He also said he's a bit disappointed with the president of the last two years that has been overturned regarding credits and wonders if this is a cultural thing in China. I'm going to explain it and then Alison and Liz can tell me if they think that I have to cut the explanation out. So if this then immediately jumps to Raj's next two listeners, you know why. Oh no, we cannot say that. I think we can. It's true. No, you can't say that. Raj, I'm simply going to answer your question by telling you that we are below what is widely referred to as the McCarty threshold and leave it at that. You can ask us more questions in the bar. Raj also says, what does the 17 point lead mean? Uh, He looked, but he couldn't find anything. I think it literally means 17 votes. So um, 17 people that cast votes. Um, It's not it's not 17%. I know that because that would have that would definitely have trounced um, Scalzi even with the double, I think. So, Ersatz Culture tweeted us and said they found a um, video on uh, the internet which like had some bona fide wrecks and says the other one that they brought up seems a different beast for reasons they'll eventually get around to documenting property. And then they sent us a follow-up email basically kind of going into some of the details of this, um, but says they're not ready to go into the details they hint at in the toot yet. Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're going to leave this discussion for later um, and come back to it when there is more information available. He does say at the end of his email, I'll still keep listening to you every fortnight regardless. Thank you very much, Ersatz Culture. We're glad to have you on board. We also heard from Roman Orzanski. Given the comments about Worldcon translating English names into phonetic sounds and Alison's comment that some pe- that people are given a Chinese name when studying Chinese and that the Worldcon should have asked for their Chinese names, one has to ask, what are the Chinese names of members of the Octothorpe cast? I don't think any of us have one. No, but if I get one, I'll let you know, Roman. Because I might do. Learning Chinese is one of the things on my very, very long list of things I want to do, given that I'm going to live forever. 
And then Roman threw a book against the wall, which was one of Robert Heinlein's later works. And Roman thinks it was either The Number of the Beast or The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, but he doesn't want to have to bother to actually find out which it was, which I think is entirely fair, Roman. Thank you for writing in. I think the only Heinlein I've ever read is Starship Troopers. I don't think I've read anything else. I might be wrong. I read Starship Troopers, I think, and uh, I read some of his juveniles when I was a juvenile and quite enjoyed them. You mean last week, Liz? Oh, sing. <laughs> We've saved a letter for last, uh, which is Christopher J. Garcia. And he writes in, says that his kids asked whether Batty was Liz's goth name, fully aware that Chris's goth name is Chanticleer Ennui, and if he had ever met Alison and Bella calmed down enough to say they sound like they're from the East Coast. And I think anyone listening would agree that we all sound like we live on the east coast of the usa uh this is definitely what uh east coast accents sound like yes i i sound particularly like i'm from boston definitely he's working on the sf book of lists to list harder which might take a while meaning he can't work on the batty criminal detective agency stories for a while but he does have the title for a book murder from the third row it's a good name someone needs to write that it's <laughs> a good name good name it's pretty good. Yeah, you should you should write that, Chris, and we can we can discuss my share of royalties uh, later. <laughs> Not that great as you're the first victim. No, it's my criminal detective agency. I can't be the first victim, can I? <gasps> that would be a twist. Yeah, quite an old twist. That was all the letters of comment. Thank you, people, for writing in. Oh, that was not a letter of comment. It was. Thank you, Chonky. Transcription. So we have submitted to the Hugo Voter Packet listeners. Probably if you're already a listener, you're not going to go back and look at our submission because um, you've already heard all the episodes. Um, But we have given episodes 49, 62 and 72 to the Hugo Voter Packet. uh, And we've given all of our cover art as well. Um, And we've done transcripts for those three episodes. Um, And we would like to know whether anyone listening interact with transcripts for any podcasts and if they do what is it you want from your transcripts none of the three of us use transcripts for podcasts and so we would be keen to know what people find useful and what they don't because we're kind of guessing which you know makes it hard to do a good job i think so if anyone does have any opinions please do write in i I think having it on github is good and we should probably put all the other transcripts we've done on github as well yes so we do now have a github of our transcripts and subtitles um what i'll probably do so at the moment it's just got the three that we put in for the hugo voter packet i will probably put in the automated whisper ai generated transcripts as well they are not as good as the ones we've been through and fixed um, but they are still pretty good they're definitely good enough to kind of get a feel for what we were talking about and as someone who does use subtitles on like youtube videos and stuff they're better than a lot of those so uh those will be going in as well but if you want to look at transcripts or subtitles head over to the github which has a link in the show notes yeah and we do also have them by the way in, in the subtitle format so if you want to listen to the pod with subtitles you can do that either from our podbean page or by running the subtitles yourself in a media player of your choice And then finally, I was transcribing episode 72 and we decided in that episode that we should do 
our Octiversary podcast in either episode 80 or episode 88. And coming to you from the lands of episode 89, I can confirm that we did not do either of those things. Hurrah! We're very geared as monkeys towards base 10. So you will find a celebration in episode 100 if we're still going by then. Alison is showing her 10 digits to the camera. Oh god, that sounded kinkier than I anticipated it would when I started. <laughs> I am um I am now wondering about doing us as eight digit monkeys. Eight fingered monkeys. Oh yes. That would be good. I like mm, that. That's very AI because of the number of fingers being wrong. <sighs> I love it. Yeah, no, no, the, the number of fingers are wrong but inconsistent. Yes. Also, would these be AI-generated transcripts, John? So, we're going to move on to Glasgow in 2024. Shall we talk about Liz's role first and then do AI? We can do. Liz has taken a role for Glasgow in 2024. And um, she is the area head of podcasting programme. Yes. I don't know how anyone knows about that, because as far as I know, it is not on the uh, website or anything. Esther told me. Oh, Esther told you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yes, no, I am am on the website now. I am down as podcasting content area head. And it is still very early days, as in, which I mean, I haven't really done anything yet. Can we we do a podcast? Can we do a live podcast? Can we? Can we? Can we? I believe there will be uh, ways in which you can, you know, submit to your program. In fact, there's already a way you can submit your program ideas. So go and fill in the form. But yes, by podcasting content, it means both live podcasts and program items about podcasting. And I will sort of, you know, look at the suggestions, come up with some suggestions of our own, curate them into a podcasting stream at Glasgow in 2024. So should you have any great ideas about a podcast program or any other program, to be honest, please submit them through our page where you can suggest program items. I have an idea for a panel. The title of the panel is Why Don't Podcasters Shout? And the blurb is Why Don't Podcasters Just Shout? Why Use Microphone? Our panel discusses the pros and cons of literally shouting into the void. What do you reckon? It's existential. Liz has written in the show notes. Please put this into the program suggestion form, John. Okay, Liz, I will do that. I'm going to do it on the podcast. Yeah, do, and we apparently have to put Can We Have Octothorpe Live into the program suggestion form. I'm assuming that the entire purpose of this is to prevent, of, of Liz's appointment, is to prevent me from messaging Esther every time I think, oh, and another thing you need to do for podcasters is. Yeah, this just seems you're going to message me, doesn't it? I've not really thought this through. 100%. No, I'm going to tell you on the pod. Oh. <laughs> no, put it. Put it in the form. Uh, can't. I've submitted the form, Liz. Boom. Okay. Yeah, so some of the stuff I've been saying hasn't been the sort of thing you put on the form because it's more kind of how you would structure the convention to make it podcast friendly in the same way that you might do how you would structure the convention to make it fanzine friendly, right? That sort of thing. I.e. make the Worldcon, tailor the fan, the Worldcon more to my specific needs. Yes. I, I await Alison's many messages and emails on this topic over the next year. So Glasgow 2024 have released a statement uh, about their policy on the use of AI art, which they say is a result of consultation with the Association of Science Fiction and Fantasy Artists and with artists at 
various uh, conventions and looking at the policies of other conventions, but basically they will not accept artwork into the art show that comprises anything that was created using text-to-image AI generators or was created using any compiler or generator that relies on the use of other artists' images without the express permission of the artist. So basically, if you have used one of these um, systems to generate art uh, without the permission maybe of the artist whose work underlies it, then you cannot put it into the art show and they would prefer you also not to sell it in the dealer's room and if you only have AI artwork, you will that will be taken into consideration when they give you dealer's room tables. So basically, uh, a strong thumbs down to AI-generated art. So I have views, and this is views based on the fact that I have spent my entire career as a fan artist with people saying, oh no, you're not doing real art because I've always been using available digital tools. So when I started doing art, I started in a program called PaintShop Pro, doing collaging. And no, I was I was doing parody art of of movie posters. I didn't get the permission of the movie poster, the movie makers to do that. It's still fan art. It's still art. If you use any of the following, if you use any sort of Photoshop or any other photo manipulation program, there's tons of machine learning in that. If you use fonts, they're all based on original work of artists because there's no copyright in fonts in the US. If you, if you use a phone camera, then your, the reason that phones, despite having tiny cameras, give much better pictures than cameras, which have great big lenses, is because phones have machine learning in them. So they are building on incredibly large databases of photography and nobody complains about them. But suddenly when this piece of art of manipulation comes along, people are like, oh no, it's based on looking at a billion pictures. In some way, that's terribly much worse than everything else. And you know, it's scary. If you're an artist who puts paint on paper, it's scary because new tools are scary. But um, essentially, A, it's the future. And and we're science fiction fans, and, and science fiction fandom should be. When science fiction comes and knocks on the door and says, here I am, um, here's the future, we shouldn't always be going, oh, no, let us demonstrate that we are the most Luddite and reactionary people on the planet. So, you know, I think this is totally the wrong decision. I think that art that is completely machine-generated is rubbish at the moment, and that's why it's not in your art show, because it's rubbish and you have a quality threshold. And I think that lots of real artists are doing great work by taking the stuff that comes out of machine learning generators and then improving it, and I think that's fine. That they won't accept art into the art show that comprises anything using text-to-image AI generators, so stuff like Midjourney or... um... Dali, and they won't let you use a, any compiler generator that relies on the use of other artists' images without the permission of that artist. So I think they should probably make allowances for parody or commentary, as Alison says, um, because I do think, you know, there is there is value in art which does kind of remix stuff in ways that are respected by copyright law in many countries at the moment. Uh, and I don't think having a stricter line on that than, for example, the US's copyright laws is helpful. Because, yeah, I think I think a right to, you know, if, if someone does do a parody of sort of a uh, sort of misogynistic movie poster to make some science fiction art, like, is that something Glasgow will look down on? I rather imagine not. So this this statement needs to reflect that. I do think um, none of the examples of AI that Alison gave in terms of like Photoshop filters or phone cameras uses an artist's image without the express permission of that artist. So all of that would be fine. I think you could probably have an argument there. But I think by having that argument, you're doing a disservice to what Glasgow is trying to do here. Um, And I think it's possible to 
agree with the I, I mean i have a wife who is an artist who is very against ai art i don't think it's fair to characterize the sf community valuing human labor as reactionary and luddite i think there is an argument here about the society we want to use our technology to build and if that society doesn't involve humans i'm broadly against it uh, and so I think it's more nuanced than that and probably an argument that's that's too much to go into on the pod. Um, but I don't know. It's tricky. I, I, in general, don't disagree with the spirit of the statement. Like I say, I would introduce exceptions for parody and for commentary. Um, but like in general, I don't have a big problem um, with this. Um, and I think Espana will quite likes this kind of statement made. So I very deliberately put a piece of, a of art that had involved AI generation into my Hugo Voter packet. I described it as um, my bid for being ranked below no award. So, um, but, you know, I did it quite deliberately because I think it's really important to say you can make excellent, unique individual work using these tools as part of what you do. But Glasgow doesn't want it because they're wrong. <laughs> There is a, I mean, there is a personal taste thing here as well, right? Like all of my favourite pieces of Alison's art that she's done for the podcast are the ones that don't involve AI and all of my least favourite ones are the ones that do. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Oh, thanks a lot. Sorry. I, I think it would be interesting for you to say which those are and for me to say, aha, because you don't know when I'm using AI. It's usually quite obvious because they're the ones that don't like look like your art style. <laughs> Like you have an art style and sometimes you do things and I'm like, oh, that's quite a new art direction. And then it turns out that it's because you used Midjourney for part of it. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. But like one of the things I like about art is people's style and AI doesn't have one. And like that's not a diss. OK, so one of the things that's going on with AI as well is that Britain's absolutely no question foremost science fictional artist is making and selling AI generated artwork. I like Jim Burns's art in general. I mean, I don't think he's my maybe not my favourite artist in the art show, but I do like his paintings. And I honestly could not tell that his art in the art show was AI until I uh, saw the note saying it was AI. But I also wonder how much of this is how much has that AI model been trained on Jim Burns's art? Um, so even if it's not in the art show, I think it would be really interesting if he's at Glasgow for Glasgow to ask him to, you know, talk through how he does this, because as probably one of the, I would say one of the few big name artists I've seen who seems to be pro AI art generation, it would be really interesting to see what he sees as the pros of it um, and, and how he actually does it, which might give people more of an insight into how it's done. Because I think there is a, there are people who definitely think you can just go like to mid journey and type, give me some Jim Burns style art of a cat alien and it will give you like a perfect painting, which it won't. But I can also see that Glasgow are trying to draw a line somewhere. And I think there is a line between the fact that my phone camera will try and enhance like a picture of a cow I took yesterday and something which sort of generates an image from whole cloth to be altered. Now, maybe I'm not particularly consistent in that, but I, I do think there is a difference. And you also have to do have to think about training sets and training data and what has been used. And I can also see that if Photoshop has a thing saying your data will be used for training, then there is a slight difference between that and a data set which has been scraped entirely from the Internet. Like I may not have very prominently given my consent to my Photoshop 
images being in their data set, but maybe I have in a way that I haven't if it's just like my DeviantArt gallery has been scraped. And yeah, I'd say also this is Glasgow's policy. It doesn't necessarily follow that every single convention for the you know, infinite, infinite future is going to follow that. It might be this is Glasgow's policy and other ones, you know, walk it back somewhere. But I do think it is a debate that needs to be had. And if they're going to have policy, I'm glad they've put the policy out now before people start planning for the art show and finding that actually it's not allowed. I think it's good to get it out early and have a chat about it. Um, and I do think it would be good if they had drawn a distinction between scraped data sets and with the scraped without permission and data sets where all of the data is used in posi- with permission, which they absolutely haven't done. I Sorry, okay, so I want to say four things now. Firstly, I agree with both of you, props to Glasgow for having this statement out more than a year in advance. That's very good. Secondly, I agree there needs to be a debate on this. I've just looked through the Tricon 8 programme and there is not a single item in which writers or creators discuss AI and what it means for the field. Now, what I will say, I don't think it's fair to characterise opposition to AI as being like against the spirit of the SF community, but I do think not discussing it is definitely against the spirit of the SF community. Like this is something that is coming and is a technology that will become very important regardless of your opinion on it. And so it does surprise me that the Worldcon last year did not have any forum for that. I hope that Glasgow will have a forum for that. Uh, and I'm not putting that in the program I, program request form, uh, Esther and Liz. You, you're going to have to listen to this and you're going to have to take it on board as verbal feedback. Um, thirdly, completely on board with AI models. You can train a model on your own computer using examples of your own work. And there is um, examples of artists who have done this and writers who have done this. I'm completely on board with that. And fourthly, I do think Glasgow is trying to draw a distinction here between scraping and plagiarism and using these tools with permission i do think when they say created using any compiler or generator that relies on the use of other artists images without the express permission of the artist i think that's what they're trying to do I, i'm i'm not necessarily saying i disagree with allison but i think they could do it better but i do think the spirit of this statement is that what i will say is it gets really tricky with long interminable terms and conditions where it's buried in like subparagraph five of like because on the one hand, they have technically consented, but on the other hand, I am a big fan of enthusiastic consent. And so I get very fuzzy there where I'm like, uh, and I think that's really hard argument to have. And I think it, you can get very nuanced in what you think about that. But I, I do think in general, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Alison that this could be worded better, but I think I think they are trying to draw that distinction. And then fifthly, sorry, uh, I will say they did apparently... Um, developed this statement in consultation with the um with asfa which is the association of science fiction apparently the artists uh sarah felix is their um chair and that's another thing i just want to highlight like they clearly have tried not to just levy this from a bunch of people who haven't talked to artists they have clearly tried to do a consultation whether or not they've done that widely enough i don't know but those are those are my things it is not unusual for people who are already successful in the field to pull up the drawbridge against new technology that might um, might attack their position of privilege. So I think that's a core thing that's going on here is, yes, people who have made their money using paint on paper, and I fully accept that science fiction authors, artists are not particularly, it's not a particularly lucrative field but um they're not they're going to be absolutely on point on trying to prevent any technology that isn't paint on paper well 
But I don't think so. Like Hispania was a member of Asfa, so I and I don't think um, I don't think you have to pay to join. I think there's fewer, also fewer, fewer paint on paper. Well, I'd ne- literally never heard of it until this podcast. So you know what? Yeah, it's like the okay. So it's like the it's like the American. Um, it's like the science fiction writers of America, right? Well, I mean, firstly, the Science Fiction Writers of America doesn't exist anymore. It's now the Science Fiction Writers Association. Um, and yes, it is American-based, but like it is it is the kind of science fiction group for artists. So like, I think, I don't think you have to, I don't think it costs money to join. I think it's just a thing you can join if you are a science fiction artist. One of the things I will say is it has frustrated me that they don't present the Chesleys, which is their award um, they don't present the Chesleys outside America very often, and I wish they did, because I do think the field is better for having Asfa. I think they did in 2014. I think they do sometimes, but not as, like... But yeah, I'm surprised Alison's never heard of them, because they are basically, you know, the the biggest association of science fiction and fantasy artists, and yeah, they, do, they don't present the Chesleys outside the US very often, but they do. Octothorpe, Artists' Corner. Alison, what does it say? 10,000. I'm trying to get better at... Um the xkcd model of this i mean no one's heard of everything right so the always there's always the day when you find out about a thing it's just today's a good day to be fair i had heard of the chesleys because it was relevant at at Luncon. that's fair well and that's the other thing right like i'm sure there are people who have heard of the hugo awards who haven't heard of like world coral wasfus so the award is usually the bit you've heard of if you've heard of any of it so moving on from the contentious issue of AI use in art to the completely contention-free issue of Chinese-sponsored chips to China. Hugo finalists were offered a free trip to the Chengdu Worldcon. Um, every finalist was offered one free trip. Um, so one of me, Alison or Liz, would go if, if someone from Octothorpe went. Uh, and Alison has also been offered a free trip in her capacity as glorious Hugo finalist for fan artist. So, Alison, are you going to China? So I haven't actually told them I'm not going, but I'm not going. And and my mixed my reasons are a mix of of the sorts of political ones that we are hearing a number of people saying, but also some personal ones that it falls right in the middle of my guff trip and it wouldn't actually be very practical. So it, it's it is a mixture of both. I'm slightly sad not to be going to China because I would love to meet a lot of Chinese fans in their home environment. Um but I'm not 100% certain that would happen at the Chengdu Worldcon anyway. So I might do better by just going to a random Chinese university and saying, can I hang out with Science Fiction Society for a bit? Liz, are you going to China? I mean, probably not. Although, to me, the, the whether I get a sponsored trip or not doesn't really make much of a difference because I'm geographically far closer and it's far easier for me to go. So I haven't finally completely decided. I probably won't go, which is partly for personal circumstances. It's a really awkward time of the year. and. Partly because I'm not super enthused about Chengdu, and yeah, I think it might be like the handful of non-Chinese speakers all hanging out together and not having much interaction with the Chinese fans. But I think that depends very much on how many of the Chinese fans are bilingual, and that I don't know. It could be higher than I think, um, and also how much of how much do they actually want to chat to people, and how much do they want to meet other Chinese science fiction fans? So I'm not going, probably not going, but it's not like entirely a, a, as a protest thing. It's just partly also a logistical thing. I'm not going either. Who wants to do their pick first? Shall I do mine? Because it's the end of the summer of cricket and... um... Summer of fun! 
<laughs> and I'll be back to normal, normal having time for things that are not cricket, like maybe an audiobook. So I have been reading Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James. James is a very interesting person. He was born and raised in Trinidad, where he was given the the best education that colonialism could provide in Trinidad, and then went on to be a great supporter of post-colonialism, self-rule. And he was, you know, a Marxist. He, as well as kind of supporting West Indian Federation somewhat, but also for island recognition, um, he did a lot of other interesting things too. But he was also the cricket correspondent of The Guardian. And this book was described as the best book about cricket ever written. And it is very good. He writes very well. It's it's very strange the way that he, he kind of, because this is what happened to um bright lads in Trinidad at the time, he's kind of soaked in in this sort of sense of of the British education system and then he gradually comes away from that to work out what he actually thinks for himself and all the time measured through the rule of cricket. You probably have to know a little bit about cricket to enjoy this book, but not a huge amount because he's just talking about, about cricket and about West Indian cricketers. But he is using this as a way of talking about colonialism and race and identity and what it means to be a Trinidadian and a cricketer and a West Indian and all of that. And it is fascinating, really enjoying it. Um, Has nothing to do with science fiction, guys, but you know, cricket. Quick recommendation on sort of similar lines. If you want to hear Miles Jupp, who is a rather good stand-up who used to host the News Quiz, uh, ruminate on like the nature of identity and the nature of knowing what you want to do with your life through a lens of cricket um his stand-up show uh is very good on the subject and i believe it is on amazon prime i think you've got to pay for like a little uplift and it is called fibber in the heat liz do you want to do a pick yeah i do pick i'm gonna pick a fancy book what I'm going to pick The Last Blade Priest by W.L. Wiles, uh, which I uh, happen to know Abigail Nussbaum has read, so this is just plain Abigail bait, really. It is a fancy novel. I think it's the first in a trilogy, or certainly the first in a series, because it doesn't really have an ending. It is secondary world fantasy. Uh, Basically, you have kind of converging narratives, one of whom is The Last Blade Priest from essentially a weird religion where they worship a god mountain they have demigods who are sort of bird people and anton is the 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 blade priest from a religion where they used to have human sacrifices but now they no longer do and the other plot strand is essentially a a builder a master builder from a kingdom who have fought a war against a league of free cities and just completely lost and are now subject to them and he is taken off on a, a quest essentially to to build sort of a path towards this god mountain i can't really describe it because it like if i tried to give you a summary of a 500 page fancy novel with multiple viewpoints then uh, there's just way more to it uh as big kind of secondary world fantasies go i did enjoy it i think the world building is good i think the viewpoint characters are all interesting characters and it does have some kind of interesting world building i like this kind of idea of like it is a world where you have an empire, but you also have these smaller kingdoms and you also have this league of free cities where they don't have a king. They're sort of more of a grouping and they're trying to decide, OK, if we've conquered this nation in a war, actually, what is the best way? 
do we completely subjugate them or do we try and bring them into the league? That sort of thing. Um, different attitudes to religion and magic and so on. There are elves, but some very interesting elves. I found them pretty interesting. And yeah, so I, I really quite enjoyed it. It is too long and it doesn't really have an ending. But if I was going to ding fantasy books for being too long and not really have an ending, that is, I find, an awful lot of them that I read. So I quite enjoyed it. It's one of the things where I will probably read the next one if by the time it comes out I can still remember what happened in this one, which is always my failing with fantasy trilogies. But I am still thinking, okay, I would quite like to read the second one rather than thinking, oh, that was nice, but I'm done. I'm never reading another one. It won the Kitchies Red Tentacle, I believe, this year. And they're usually a, a set of interesting reads. Excellent. One day I will know what the kitchies are, but today is not that day. We should discuss it on a future episode. Because I just hear people talking about it, but I've never really investigated it. I'm sure the same is true for some of our listeners. Um, so maybe we should, we should chat about that in the future. I'm going to pick Asteroid City by Wes Anderson. Very good movie. I went to see Asteroid City the other day. I don't know if it's genre. I think it might be, but I also think it might not be. I think it depends how you think of it. It reminds me a lot of the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is also by Wes Anderson. I think I enjoyed Grand Budapest slightly more, but it's very close. Asteroid City is probably dealing with very similar themes, but I think is much more optimistic than the Grand Budapest Hotel is. It deals more with filmmaking and storytelling than Grand Budapest does, even though Grand Budapest does deal with storytelling like in its structure. It deals with a lot of the same themes as a Christopher Nolan work, but I liked it. And Jeff Goldblum is amazing. Highly recommend you go and see it in the cinema if possible. Tom Hanks is amazing as well. I could just list all of the actors. If only I had a cinema. I'm going to say this every two weeks until the end of time now. That was the Octothought Podcast. And it's a goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. Oh, Liz, can we wish you a happy birthday on the podcast? I mean, you can wish me. And can we tell people how old you are? Yes. When's your birthday, Liz? How do I not know this? My birthday was uh, two and a half weeks ago. Yes, and Liz is now the age of 40 years old. A round number. I am. Ooh. And that means in two years she's going to have a massive party because she'll be 42. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I'm starting the campaign for everyone in Science Fiction Fandom to have massive parties at 42. It's a bit late. I'm starting the campaign in the full knowledge that eventually we will uh, unearth time travel and people can go back and uh, have retroactive parties. I mean, John, it also means you get to go to quite a few parties before you have to throw a party. Mm, I like that. I might have a a 60th. Thinking about it. I'm up for that too. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin MacLeod and Combatech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.